Luke chapter 6, verse 36 through 42. These are the words of Jesus. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, "Uh, Brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take out of the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated this morning. Luke chapter 6, especially beginning in verse 17 onwards, it's been hard. And it's been hard because we're sitting under the preaching of Jesus. I'm sitting under the preaching of Jesus today. You're not sitting under the preaching of Blake, right? Like this text is him. This is just me saying this is what he said. I'm just I'm just the messenger. And that's always true, but it's especially true when we're literally reading a sermon from Jesus. And he doesn't hold any punches. He doesn't let us qualify our way out of it. He makes sure that the whole time you're hearing him, you are looking at your heart and nobody else's. He puts your heart in front of you, and that's what makes it so hard. It makes it so hard because we have such a natural tendency to when we hear an ethical teaching to start thinking and quantifying how others aren't doing it. And what Jesus does to us is what Nathan did to David and he says, you're the man. There's a story. A man who comes into a new home. This man is a, a stranger. He's kind of an outcast. Bit of weird, but he comes into the home. And the home that he goes into is a home of royalty. And he's invited to the dinner table. The king is there. And there is a wife who's there. And she is pregnant. Seems like a beautiful home. And this strange man says to the king, Master, I... I have something I need to tell you. There is 
a man who owns a massive field full of sheep. All of it's his. He, he has so much. And he wanted to throw a party to celebrate himself, to, to be able to have some delight and pleasure for himself. He had a countless multitude of herds that he could have chosen from, but instead, he looked across to a, a small pasture to a man who lived in a small cottage. A man who only had one sheep. And rather than taking from the massive herd that he had that was available to him, he actually went and he stole the sheep from that other man, that most precious of sheep to that man. And he took it and he slaughtered it and he used it for his own satisfaction. Master, king, what should we do to that man? And the king said, we should kill him. He should be put to death for taking that man's prize sheep. And that stranger, that weird looking rough character who came out from the wilderness into the king's table, looks at that king and he says, King, you're the man. Because you see that, that pregnant woman sitting at the table with them was someone else's wife first. And the reason that she was able to become that man's wife was because that man had that other man killed. That's the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah. You see, how quick it was, how easy it was for David to see the horrible nature of the sin when it was put in someone else's lap. Look at what that man did. Yeah, he's bad. But the moment it got turned on himself, he, could, he had blinded himself. Remember, this was taking someone's sheep, a speck. David had killed a man and taken his wife, a log. But how easy it is to see the speck when it's put in someone else's eye. Instead of realizing, you're the man. You're the woman. It is easy to ask for judgment when the wrong's been done to us. But when we've been wrong, we've been wrong, how quick we are to ask for mercy. Jesus hits us hard here. And He hits me hard here. So I, I am preaching to you as someone here who so needs to get this right because I have a PhD in doing wrong what Jesus is saying here. Jesus has shown us the law of love for His kingdom and now He gives us the law of mercy. What does mercy look like? Remember, He had said, as you wish others to do to you, do so to them. You can imagine someone who's just walking in. What, what, is that, what does that look like? Now He shows us. He shows us. Jesus is unfolding for us to what it means to be merciful. That we are to, be, to love completely. That we are to see clearly. And that we are to do and to be merciful as His followers. To give evil for good is of the devil. To give good for good is human. To give good for evil is divine. 
And so what He asks us to do can't be done apart from Him. It is a supernatural mercy, just like last week it was a supernatural love. If you don't have His Spirit in you, you can't do this today. So if you leave her trying to do it, instead of be it, you're, going to have a, you're just going to fumble. We've got to be changed from the inside out. But I want you to know, my friends, if we are ever, if we are ever to be who God is calling us to be here at Hillside Baptist Church, we've got to reflect the love and mercy Christ calls us to. And my prayer... The, the Holy Spirit, as I was preparing this message last night, really impressed upon my heart that me as a pastor, I pray to God that when it's all said and done, when I hang it up and you guys are at my funeral, that I will be more known for my mercy than my messages. That I was more known for my mercy than my message. Hope that will be true for us at Hillside as well. This is supernatural. And that's why Jesus starts. Like sometimes we get messed up with the chapter divisions and the verse breakups and our paragraph breakups. None of those things are inspired. The words are what's inspired. Be merciful is the connection to this passage. Why? Because we need to know the means of mercy. And so he says here in verse 36, right? Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Matthew puts it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. We see it, Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Notice, it's about who we are, not we do. Are the merciful. Be merciful, because your Father is merciful. So something in us has to change. We need to be filled by God's Spirit. His law, this law has to be written on our hearts. Christianity is the belief that God works from the inside out. Man's religion says we work from the outside in. You just got to do and then hopefully you'll become. Uh Uh-uh. Christ says you got to become before you'll ever do. Because otherwise you'll be doing for your own gain, your own desires, your own things, your own passions to make you feel better about you. The only way to know, right, that our fruit is actually good is that the root has been properly planted. And so we need to be like our Father. Like He said last week, if you do these things, then you shall be called sons of God. Why? Because you are. You don't earn sonship. You don't earn daughterhood. You don't earn those things. But the goal is to live in such a way that people would say to you, oh, how you look like your Father. They do that to our natural offspring. Oh, how you act like your Father. I, I hear that a lot in my home. And it's usually in a context of my kids doing something wrong. Man, you're just like your dad. But that's how we should be as believers. The apple should not fall far from the tree. Why? Because we've been born again. 
The Spirit of God is in us, changing us from the inside out. And so this mercy should reflect who we are more than it is what we do. Right? Don't put the heart, the, the, the cart before the horse. Or you're just leaving here wanting to do. So God, give me this heart of mercy. That it's just natural to be merciful. It's natural to be forgiving. Because these things that he says to us are not naturally easy. They're hard. They're repulsive to us. And if they're continuing to repulse you and, they're making, and you have to feel like you're straining your teeth to do them. Because I felt that this week. It's because I need more of me to be changed. I don't need to just continue to do better actions, right? Actions will flow. I need me to be changed. I need this thing in me that's constantly, you know, pulling back from this going, oh, that's hard, Jesus. I don't like that. Why? Because more of me needs to be changed. And this is what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Spirit's not like a, like orange juice. You're not filling up our cup, Right? When we're filled with the Spirit, it means that the Spirit is getting more of us, not us more of Him. He's getting more of us, sanctifying more of us, bringing about that complete sanctification of our bodies, of, our, of, of taking our flesh and making it right, purifying it by a sanctifying power. We're becoming more like Jesus. Because as sons and children of God, sons and daughters of God, we look like the Son of God. We should. My friends, and there is no one in this world more merciful than God. God pours out billions of unacknowledged mercies every day. There are 10 billion things He is doing right now to sustain you this very moment. And you might be aware of 10 of them. Every year, He pours benefits on billions who do not honor the hand in which they come. And are not thankful to the giver who gives them. And yet every year he continues in his benefits. Every year he continues in his mercy. Every day he continues in his benevolence. To those who don't take the time at all. The acknowledgement at all. To thank him. Many who use their very words to reject and rebel against him. His loving kindness never wearies. His compassion never fails. Even towards those who do not give Him what He so rightly deserves. So if He is merciful, the reflection that we are His children should be what? We're merciful. That's the reflection. That, that when people pierce our hearts, prick our hearts, the blood that flows from it should have the DNA of our Father. The mercy of our Father. Thanklessness, rebellion, and ingratitude should not cause us to turn our face away from mercy and love. But instead, like our Father in heaven, we should never grow weary of doing good. We should never grow weary of giving mercy. Because it's who He is. And who He is is who we want to be. We want to be like Him. We want to love like Him. We want to have mercy like Him. So, what does this mercy look like? And Jesus now shows us that in verse 37 through 42. But first, He begins here. Jesus talks about how the measure of our mercy determines the measure of mercy we've received, right? And we'll receive. So, verse 37. 
we see this, these very difficult passages. He gives, he gives two negative commandments. Do not do this, right? And then He gives us two positive commandments. Do this instead. First, right? Judge not, and you will not be judged. This is the unbeliever's favorite verse. This is probably the most well-known verse in the Bible. And the reason why it's used so often and we kind of skirt away from it is because no one knows what the heck it's talking about. This doesn't mean what we think it means. Just like the golden rule is often misinterpreted, so is this. Judge not, but she be judged. Now, this strikes hard at first, right? Because this can't mean we are to lack discernment. We're called everywhere in the Scriptures to know the discernment, to, to judge between for good and evil, to discern between those things. We are called to do church discipline in counts of, of, un, of habitual sin, unrepentant sin with those in the church. We are called to judge with right judgment. John chapter 7, verse 24, right? We see this picture of we are to judge with right judgment. So, this is not the Lord saying, suspend your critical faculties, people. This isn't saying there isn't a place for judgment where, like if you're called to jury duty, you can just, as a Christian, I, I can't say whether he's innocent or guilty. That's not, that's not what's here. There's too many places in Scripture that we are to discern right and wrong. We are to judge with right judgment. We are to, do, to perform proper church discipline where necessary. As parents, we are to, to properly align the behavior of our children towards the Lord. So, so there is a place for absolute, a, a, a faithful um, spirit of discernment and judgment within the Scripture. So, what does he mean here by do not judge lest you be judged? What it means is that we do not get to sit in judgment over people in the courts of our own opinion. It means that we do not get to be the final arbitrator of one's eternal standing. The concept of being the judge here is to do what pride wants you to do, which is to sit on the throne of heaven. Judgment has become the way. It's the forbidden fruit that we've partaken as we've heard the enemy say, you shall become like God. So we get on the throne and we look down on others and we say, you're wicked, you're evil, you're bad. You're no good. If you would just do it like me. The, the word, the definition here is a, a word called sensorious. Right? We are sensorious. And what that means is, is that there's kind of three pictures of this. And the first is that we judge others 
by always ascribing their intentions with the worst of motives, as if we can see their heart. It's to pour down upon someone's dreams or vision. To say, I I think that I'm doing this or that. And it's to, to come in and to douse it with criticism. To douse it with critique. You can't do that. Judgmental people are those who reach unjust conclusions about someone else using themselves as a standard. And Spurgeon said it best. There is no one who is more unjust in their judgments of others than those who have a high opinion of themselves. These people are those who are inclined to look for faults. Who live with a fault detector in their eyes. Waiting for someone to slip. Looking for the worst in everybody. Looking for the worst in that person who's wronged them once. Letting that be the lens by which they see that person forever. They did that. I, I know what they really meant. I know what they really mean. This person's done that plenty of times. I'm not shocked at all. That's just who they are. Deeply critical. Where even the smallest of shortcomings are made to be a big deal. Just blow everything out of portion. Why? Because so-and-so did it. That's why we got to make a big deal about it. It's when we identify a person more by the speck in their eye than we do the image of God on their soul. To think we are the final judge. It's to put ourselves above people. And there's only one person above people. It's the Lord. You are on equal footing with all humanity. There's only one person who sits in just judgment. It's the Lord. How wicked do you think you are to make yourself a standard for Christianity? And he leads into this. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. So now he helps us understand what the judgment is, right? Can't be just not being critical, but he tells us a little bit later on. We should still remove, like, seek to remove the speck. He tells us in the very next thing we'll talk about next week, you'll know each other by your fruit. So there is a place for criticism, but it's not condemnatory. It's not sitting as an arbitrator, sitting on the throne of God, saying we can see hearts. You can't. You can't see anyone's heart. So stop reading motives that you can't see. To condemn is to say that someone that you are beyond God's reach. Holding them under the bondage of guilt. Never loving them towards redemption. Say, you're too far gone. My friends, I want you to know something today. If the holy God did not condemn you, sinner, then you, sinner, don't ever get to condemn another sinner. 
If the holy God of heaven chose not to condemn you, sinner, you, sinner, don't ever get to condemn fellow sinner. You don't get that. Because here's the hard truth that you need to swallow, dear Christian. If Christ could save you, He can save anybody. That's a pill you need to swallow if you're ever going to be faithful in giving the gospel rightly. If He could save me, there's nobody beyond His reach. You can say with Paul, I am the chief of sinners. And if He could even come close to loving me, giving me mercy... That's all I can do to anybody else. I have nothing else to give to anybody else. If that holy God of heaven gave me love and mercy. Self-righteous, judgmental condemners of others is not what Christ calls us to. And if that's what you want to be here, he says that's what you'll receive. And the reason why he's saying that is, Please hear me. This is not Jesus teaching a workspace salvation. You know, if you, if you would just be merciful, you'll get some mercy. If you just will forgive, you'll forgive. No. Remember, it goes back. If you do these things, you'll be called the sons of God. What he's saying here is, is if you are a judging, condemnatory person, you don't know the gospel. I'm sorry, you don't. You may know it. You may be able to repeat it. You may be able to say it verbally. It's never pierced your heart. That the holy God of heaven came down for you, wicked sinner, and took your sin upon himself when you deserved judgment and death and wrath. And instead, you got life and mercy and love and forgiveness. And so if you aren't these things, you won't be forgiven. Why? Because you've never known the gospel. You truly have not believed the gospel. And so my prayer for you today My prayer for me this week was, Lord, help me believe the gospel. Help me really believe it. Help me believe that this is what you really did for me. Because till you get that in here, you'll never do this right. You'll never be able to do this naturally until you get the gospel in you. Now he gets to the positive commands. Forgive. And you will be forgiven. We pray this in the Lord's Prayer. I love Luke's abridged version. Luke chapter 11, verse 4. We'll see this upcoming. And he says, And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Notice the assumption in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us, for we ourselves forgive everyone. Lord, forgive us as we forgive everyone. Boy, how that prayer has been turned into a lie. Coming through a lot of lips. And I'm one of them. Forgive us as we're forgiving everyone. Not forgive us as we keep holding grudges and letting the root of bitterness spring up inside of us. My friends, forgiveness should be A foundational mark of a Christian's experience. Why? Because you've been forgiven. That's why. 
There is no one who has ever faulted against you as much as you faulted against the Lord. And you've been forgiven. As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? As God in Christ forgave you. Paul recognizes it's hard. But it's only hard when you've forgotten the gospel. You've been forgiven by God. And what does forgiveness look like? It's not acquittal. It's not pretending like something didn't happen. It's not turning a blind eye to it. Forgiveness is amnesty. Not acquittal. It's turning them over to God and choosing to free them because you know who you are as a sinner. You know what you've done. You know what you're capable of. So you just give them to God. You say, I'm going to just choose to forgive them. Because my friends, if you want to take the path of vengeance, you might as well bury, you might as well dig two graves. And go ahead and crawl in the second one. Because you'll slowly kill yourself. I tell people all the time, and this is hard for people to hear, but in many ways, unforgiveness is almost deeper than murder. Murder can happen quickly, fastly. And a, a, a crime of passion. Forgiveness roots and deeps. And it's a, it's a willful choice. A cold, conscientious decision each day to hold someone in the bondage of guilt. I'm not letting you go. And that doing so, it allows you to forever sit in a place of judgment. Forgiveness should be the root of God's people flowing out of us because we have been forgiven. It is a a freeing of others and a freeing of ourselves to say, I cannot hold you in guilt because I'm not held in guilt. And how often this springs up in our relationships. You see, so often we think the whispers of the accuser are to remind us of our own sins. No way. It's to remind us of everyone else's. That enemy whispering in our ear. Don't you remember what he did to you? Don't you remember what she did? You can't forgive her. And you may ask, well, I've forgiven. Forgiveness is not just not talking about it. Forgiveness isn't just shoving it down in you so that when the next conflict comes, you can keep bringing it up. Because what that does is, and this is what happens in relationships, we're six years removed from the incident, but it's still getting brought up. Why? Because it's your ways, it's your way as a person to not have to confront your own wrongdoing. You can keep bringing up everyone else's sin and their sin from the past so that you don't have to confront the fact that in that moment, you were wrong. This is why we hold on to it. It's a debt, an emotional debt. That's what forgiveness is. A lack of forgiveness is an emotional debt that we hold on to so that someone will have to keep repaying us. 
You've made them slave to the lender. And Christ says, break the chains. Break the chains. You forgive. Because you've been forgiven. Infinitely more than you'll ever have to forgive anyone else. So you forgive. And forgiveness breeds an open heart, which is why he says, give and it will be given to you. So the fountain of mercy flows from the streams of forgiveness and the streams of forgiveness flows out of the river of God's grace. And so everything you have is because God gave it. It's grace. Him emptying himself to give to you. And so if you're forgiven and you know how much you've been given, you give back. What's he talking about? Give here. What's the mercy? Give mercy. Give grace. Give love. That's the point. Give it. And it will be given to you. Why? Because it reflects who you are. It reflects that you have been given those things by God. It reflects that your being has been touched by him. That his fingerprints are all over your soul. So you don't judge. You're not around condemning people. You're quick to forgive and you give grace and mercy and love. Why? Because you've received all of that from Him. An utter humility that's found by holding yourself up to the cross day by day. If you hold yourself in light of the cross, you will get a humble clarity That leads you to mercy for others. Now he talks about this measure, right? Verse 38. I love this picture he gives. Jesus is such a beautiful illustrator. Good measure. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure. Pressed down. Shaken together. Running over. Which we put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be the measure back to you. The illustration here is that of the market. And during this time, there were people in the markets who would place produce or other things into a bushel and they would stack it in such a way that it would look full, but there was plenty of space left. It's kind of like when you buy the chips nowadays and like half the bag isn't even filled. It's like the same amount of chips, just bigger bag, and so you pay twelve more dollars, right? It's wrong. The idea here is a good, a faithful person who is selling in the market would put down produce and grain and shake it and press it down and ensure that it was filled completely, even to the point that it's running over. That's a faithful steward. Someone who gives and ensures that, that there's no space left to put any more into this. And, and that's what the Lord's saying. He's given to us. He has given us such an abundance of mercy that our cup overflows. Our bushel overflows in the mercy of the Lord. There is no gaps in God's mercy. No space in His forgiveness. No lacking in His love. Every part of it has been pressed down, shaken and stirred and pouring over into our lap. So he says, this is how you should be loving people. How often are we shortcutting people with our mercy? Because notice, the person at the market who's buying wouldn't be able to tell that he's getting cheated. It looks like it's full. Thank you. 
But the one who's selling knows there was more room in there. And this is true to your heart. And this is where God, Jesus is pulling open and up, filleting open your heart here. There may be lots of people who see you as merciful. Think that you're doing it. But what is your heart saying? Are you actually grumbling afterwards? They're always needing help. Just a bunch of charity cases, man. Like if, I, if it wasn't for me, this thing would be falling apart. Come and wear a smile. I'm so happy to help you. Complain about it the rest of the day. A lot of space left in that bushel. So what does God do? What does God do in our lives? Because He's changing us inside out. So what does God do to help fill up our bushel of mercy? Well, He shakes up your life. And He starts pressing down. So what does He do? He starts bringing tough situations in your life. He brings people in your life that are hard to love. That pull right where they know how to. Because He's shaking you up. Because you need space. You need to learn how to love better. You need to be filled up more with love and more with forgiveness and more with mercy. So He's going to shake your life up. And He's going to push down on it. So if you're finding yourself surrounded by people, like, oh, this workplace is terrible. Maybe the question is that you need another workplace. Maybe you need to learn how to love better. Maybe you are lacking mercy and God's showing you the empty spaces. And He's surrounding you with hard people to love because you were a hard person to love and yet He did it freely. Fully, completely. And so He's put you in tough situations because He's pressing down and making room for mercy so that His mercy which overflows can pour out of you onto your lap and onto others' laps. So don't be repelled when you're surrounded with people. It's hard to give mercy in this moment. When you find yourself having a difficult time to forgive, it's God. He's pressing down. He's shaking it up because He's making, He's filling it up because He wants you to overflow with His mercy. He wants you to be His instrument of mercy. And He will show you the space that's empty. And we don't like it when He shows that. Because it's much better to, to, to blind ourselves in self-deception. To think we are given so much. I am so merciful. No, you're just arrogant. And self-deceiving. And Christ will show you the spaces. He'll shake it up. Because He loves you enough to do it. The Lord disciplines those He loves. Because He wants you to overflow in His mercy to others. That it might pour over into your lap. And in the same with others. This is a picture of reaping and sowing. We are called to sow mercy to others. And the fact is that we will reap. And I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6-8. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God's love loves a cheerful giver. Notice, it's not about the doing. If, you're, if you don't want to give, God says you better keep it. Because I'd rather you hold it back than be a, a grumbling giver. Because there ain't no worship in that. 
you got to change. Be a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, overflowing, so that you have all sufficiency in all things at all times. You may abound in every good work. So God is working in us, right? Shaking it up so that we can sow mercy, right? He wants us to sow mercy because we'll receive it. We'll receive that back. He wants us to sow love and sow forgiveness because we know we're going to receive it. But here's the thing, right? You can only sow seed that's been given to you. You've got to get the, sow, the seed from somewhere. And where did it come from? It came from the Holy Spirit. So the very fact that you're able to sow means you've received. And you see the cycle here. As God is pouring into us, willing and working for His own good pleasure, we are pouring out, working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Working in, we're working out the miracle. God is working in us supernaturally. Sow and give. And He will make sure that you are able to do all things. For I love that. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 through 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. I love this because it's always putting the gospel in front of you. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and forever. Amen. He's working in us where we can work out that which is pleasing in his sight. So the fact that we are able to sow mercy means He's working mercy within. So that's what we've got to pray. God, shake me up that I might love better. Don't get mad when He shakes you up. Say, Lord, how does this help me love more? How can I be more merciful? How can I be more like You? You're the light of the world. He says, You're the light of the world. Who can hide a city on a hill? He's made you to be shiny. He's made you to be light. So why do you think He would keep you from darkness? When in precisely that's where He will carry you so that that light can overflow more as He shakes and presses down in your heart to make more room for mercy. Let that be your prayer. God, make more room for mercy. Make more room for love. Make more room for forgiveness. So he gives us the model, right? Verse 39 and 40. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? The disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not know? Or excuse me, we'll stop there at verse 40. But everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Just as a blind guide leads others into the pit, a faulty teacher will produce faulty disciples. Blind guide is not someone you want to follow. And we are filled, full in this world of blind guides. And the question that we need to ask ourselves here is where are our actions leading other people? If people followed my actions, where would I be leading them? To whom would I be leading them? In other words, we need to remind ourselves we are disciples, not the teacher. 
And who is our teacher? Well, the answer is Jesus. Jesus is our teacher. And we are to be like our master, like our teacher, like our model. Who is full of mercy and grace and love and forgiveness. The Christian cannot hope to act as a guide to others unless he himself sees clearly where he's going and who he was. If you don't know where you're going and you don't know who you were, you'll never be able to lead anyone else rightly. And Alice in Wonderland, there's a story where Alice comes across the cat. She's weeping and she's struggling, looking at two different paths. And the cat says, what's wrong? And she goes, I don't know which path to take. And the cat, chuckling, laughing at her, says, well, well, where are you going? And she says, I don't know. And the cat says, well, it doesn't matter what you choose then. If you don't know where you're going, you don't know what path to follow. And Christ is the path. Christ is the model. He's the path. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is our master. He is our model. He is our teacher. He took us from who we are and He shows us where we're going. He is the finish line of the race. He is the model we follow. He is who we are to align ourselves like. And the danger of spiritual blindness is that it thinks it sees. It thinks it sees. I know what's going on. I know what's clear. I know what this person thinks. I know where they're at in life. Instead of resting and trusting on the Lord to give Him the light of mercy, to enlighten our eyes, the, 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 the light of God's Word, the lamp unto our path, a light unto our feet. We need external illumination in order to see properly. Because we don't have anything in us. Our hearts are desperately wicked. Full of deceit. And they will lead us down a path of destruction. So when anyone says, hey, follow your heart. No! Don't! Your heart will lead you to hell. Don't follow your heart. Follow Christ. He's the path. He's the way. If we're going to be instruments of mercy, we need to learn from the greater, greatest master of it, Jesus Himself. He needs to be set before your eyes. Because if Jesus is set before your eyes, you will never set yourself in judgment. Because you'll remember what you received. You'll remember, you'll remember what your master did for you. Every other path leads to destruction, both for ourselves and for those we guide. And so the prayer we must always be praying is, Oh Jesus, make us more like You. There used to be the old statement, What would Jesus do? Who cares? Lord, we want to be like You. We want to be like Jesus. I don't think so much about what He did. I don't know who he, what He is. I want to be like Him. That's what I want to fill me up, Lord. Make me like You. I don't want to just mimic your actions. I want you to be in me, flowing out of me and through me. Make me like you, Jesus. So Jesus here closes by giving us the proper mindset of mercy. He shows us how we can protect our hearts from sitting in that place of judgment. And what causes us often, how almost 
hilarious it is to think someone, another sinner can sit in judgment over another sinner. He, he uses a humorous parable. This would have made people chuckle. Because the point is to show how silly it is to think sinners can sit over sinners. Verse 41 and 42. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eyes, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your own eye, when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take out the log of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. Mercy begins with the mindfulness of who I am and what I've done before it ever pursues the correction of another. It begins with who I am, what I've done, what I've received from Christ before it ever starts turning towards others. In other words, it is to look in the mirror before you go stare out the window. Because when you look in the mirror, you can see your own blemishes. And properly submit those and surrender those to the Lord before you start dealing with other people's sin. As if you are sitting in a place of purity. As if you yourself are the spotless one. Rather than having been redeemed by the spotless one. We miss the forest of our sin for the tree of others. And Jesus says we need to do some spiritual lumberjacking. This isn't saying we ignore sin. Notice, He says, deal with your log and then take care of the speck in your brother's eyes. He's not saying there's no place for correction. He's saying it better flow out of a humble heart that recognizes your own massive sinfulness. Paul, to me, is one of the greatest examples of this. Romans chapter 7, verse 18. Paul says this about himself. For I know nothing good dwells in me that's in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Paul is saying, listen, I'm trash. I got, I, I, apart from the Spirit of God, I got no hope. There is nothing in me, in my flesh, that's good. He would say later on in that, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this bondage of flesh? But thanks be to God and our Lord Christ Jesus, right? Jesus is the answer. We need that spiritual reality. Because apart from that spiritual reality, we are garbage. We are, there's nothing good in me. I will lead you astray. I will lead myself astray into self-deception. And I'll take you with me. Apart from the Spirit of God. This is why Paul would say in, in um, 1 Corinthians 5, we don't judge outsiders. Talking about non-believers. Why? Because we expect non-believers to act like non-believers. We expect the world to act like the world. So we don't sit in judgment over them because we expect them to act that way. Without the Spirit of God, nothing good dwells in me. Do you believe that? Because if you do, you'll sit a whole lot more humbly.
There is a place for correction, but it flows from mercy. There's an oral tradition that was passed through the early church and it made its way into Scripture. It was not, it was not actually a part of the text, the original Greek text. But it was a traditional story of what Jesus had done that had passed through illustrations used by pastors and preachers of the early church. And so it made its way into Scripture. You all know the story. It's the pericope adultery, the woman called in adultery. It made a landing spot in John, but throughout the reason why we know it wasn't True to the original text is because there's some manuscripts that have it in Mark. There's some manuscripts that have it in other places. It wasn't true to the text. But we find it in the earliest oral tradition of the church. And so that's why it made its way to the source. So it's very likely this story happened. But I want you to look at how Jesus models this amazing picture for us. John chapter 8, verse 7 to 11. Remember, the woman's been caught in adultery. And everyone says, what are you going to do to her? As they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. Notice the finger of God. Like he wrote in the law. The tablets, Christ is establishing a new law. Law of mercy. We're reading right now in, John, in Luke 6. But when they heard it, they went away one by one. Beginning with the older ones. Because usually older age brings a little bit more humility. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You want to talk about loving correction? There you go. Notice, Jesus didn't say, All right, well, have a good day. You keep doing what you're doing. Be strong, sister. And you don't let them get you down. You got to make it your way. No. He said, I don't condemn you, but don't go sin anymore. Because why? When Christ came in his first coming, it wasn't for condemnation, it was for mercy, it was for salvation. And when he returns, he will come as a judge. But for now, it's mercy. So I, I say to you today, if you come here and you've been in a terrible lifestyle, I don't care what it is. I don't care what you've come here with today. I do not condemn you. Christ does not condemn you. But turn from your sin. And you trust in Him. And you repent from it. Because He will come back as a judge. And you will stand under His condemnation if you do not receive the mercy He gives now. No one could throw a stone. Why? Because they knew they were all guilty. They knew that they had a log in their own eye. And my friends, the only beam of wood you better have in your eye is the cross. Because it will filter out you look at people in a radical new way. We do correct. There is a place to correct a brother. There is a place to correct a sister fallen in sin. Not living in accordance with the Word. But we do it from a place of utter and complete humility. So much so that we are so recognizing of our own sin that no matter what they do, it always remains a speck. Because we realize how big our own sin is. We don't make 
their molehill and turn it into a mountain because we know the mountain of sin we've been forgiven. So I want to close with this application today. How do we correct with God's mercy in a culture of perversion and condemnation? Because that's the issue we're in. Our culture is full of perversion. So like, how do we address that, Blake? But our culture is also full of condemnation. It's a cancel culture. That's the problem with the woke movement. It offers judgment but no redemption. And with the culture of perversion and addressing it, because we can sound just like a bunch of political conservatives who are blasting the other side with no Christianity at all. Or we can sound like the woke movement who's just condemning the other side with no hope of redemption at all. And once again, like we're called to be with Jesus, we're different from everybody. So our way of correcting others as instruments of mercy in this culture of perversion and condemnation should set us apart from everybody else. Because it's otherworldly. So what does, how do we do this? This is what I want to close with. First, we must be slow to pronounce guilt. We should genuinely assume innocence in others and thus the evidence proves otherwise. When Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, 7 that we love believes all things, it means it really does assume the best in people. Love believes and sees through them what is possible, what is capable. It is slow to pronounce guilt. A charitable judgment. Christians are called to believe the best about each other until sufficient evidence confirms beyond a reasonable doubt that a transgression has occurred. We don't get to be the people who just throw people in the fire the way the world does. That's not us. We don't get to do that. Because that's unjust judgment. That's unjust measures. That's not the standard you want to be judged by. You don't want guilt assumed by you. You don't want the worst motive to be read into you every time you do something. And how quick we are to do it to others. Be slow to pronounce guilt. Be a people of truth. Don't let your emotions guide you. Emotions are tyrannical masters. And they will lead you to causing guilt, to reading in motive that is not there. Proverbs chapter 25 verse 8. Do not hastily bring into court for what you will do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame. What will you do in the end when your neighbor puts you to shame? In other words, you've rushed to court. He's guilty. She's did this. She's bad. She's done these things. What happens when they embarrass you when they show otherwise? What happens when the evidence comes out and you look like a fool now, Christian? Because you let what the world was selling you be your point of judgment rather than what God's Word was teaching you. You let man's sellings direct your heart more than God's teachings. So you're quick to jump to guilt just as fast as anybody else. So secondly, what do we do? We need to acknowledge your sin and need for grace before you deal with others. This is not saying you must be sinless to deal with sin. Because guess what? We'd never be able to do anything. 
It's saying that everything that I deal with others or critique others with always flows out of the immense weight and light of what I've been forgiven of, of the sin that I have in my own life. And if there's habitual sin in my life that's not been repented of, that, I, that, are, that has the best of me, I shouldn't be even worried about anybody else. I need to be worrying about where I am with the Lord and working on that. And you wonder why our message on homosexuality falls so flat when we've got pastors plagued by porn. And you wonder why nobody preaches on that. Or why nobody preaches on the fact that if you're in here today and you're living with your girlfriend or boyfriend and you're having sex before marriage, you're in sin. You're in sin. And we just let that happen. We got youth ministers all over the country doing it. Well, I don't know why our message for homosexuality isn't powerful. Because you're a hypocrite. We've got to acknowledge our sin first and our need for grace because that produces the humility in us necessary to gently approach someone else's sin. Third, we need to know when to keep quiet. Not everything deserves your two cents. Not everything ought to be you ought to have a front row seat to. If we are not personally involved or are distant observers to a conflict, the best thing that we can do to aim for a person's restoration is simply by praying. A good rule of thumb is that the greater our distance from a conflict, the greater our ignorance of it. I don't got anything to say about this. I don't know. Yeah. Instead of saying, you know, I, I don't know about that. But let me tell you about this one time she did this to me. Or that reminds me of that one time he did that to me. You keep your mouth shut. Because you don't know what you're talking about. You've added more fuel to the fire. You just pour onto it. Because it allows you to be outside an outside observer that lets you sit in judgment over others. So know when to keep your mouth shut. There are certain things that the best thing you can do is just pray. No one else needs, I don't, I heard it, but I don't know. So I'm just going to pray. I don't know enough about their situation. I don't know what they're going through. I'm just going to pray. An ignorant commentary about a person or situation is never helpful. And it's usually nothing more than gossip or slander, which Jesus calls evil over and over again. I love this writing of Proverbs, Proverbs 17, 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Whoever seeks to cover an offense, right, seeks love. I, I, want, I want mercy for this person. I, I want to see them restored. I want to see love in their life. How often we just we whispers, birds carrying the news to someone else to hear, separating close friends because it elevates our pride to sit in judgment. Why do we like sitting in judgment? Because it reminds us just how like it, it takes our eyes away from just how messed up we are. If I can sit in judgment for what everyone else is doing, I never got to get right myself. I never got to stop doing those things myself if I can sit in judgment over others. I need to be told I'm the man. 
like David. We must remember how faulty our perceptions are and how biases distort our judgment. We often think we understand what's going on. In reality, we do not. I have learned that so many times. I, have, I saw a person, a soldier, a person in the church that were just, I thought, God, these people are messed up, man. They're, I don't know what's wrong with them. They can't get right. Until I actually got to know them. And I said, God, I can't, I'm amazed this person isn't worse. I'm thankful this person's still alive after what they've gone through. Like Christianity is inside out. People are slowly being transformed and conformed by the Holy Spirit. And you expect Jim, who's been, been saved for two weeks, to look like Paul. Sometimes it's best just to know when to keep quiet. And surrender it to prayer. Rather than gossip. Four. Judge with righteous judgment. Three things need to be in your mind when you think about righteous judgment. Is what I'm saying true? Is what I'm saying kind? And is what I'm saying necessary? Is it kind means that we lead with grace. We lead with grace in how we want to come to them. Is it truth? Is it dictated by what God's Word says? Not how I feel. Not what I think. What God's Word says. And is it necessary? Is it necessary in that if I don't address this, this brother or sister could be slipping off to judgment? Because there are sometimes it's just not necessary. That's when you need to know when to be quiet. Love, grace, and truth comes at it from this point. This is how we judge with righteous judgment. Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Like, judge others as you wish to be judged. What's the standard you hope if someone had to come to you to critique you, how would you want it? I'd want it to be full of love, grace, and truth. That's how we should give it. We give a whole lot of truth, not a lot of love. Or we give a whole lot of love, not a lot of truth. And they can't be divorced from each other. Truth without love makes you a Pharisee. A love without truth makes you a Sadducee. Sadducees didn't believe in the Word of God. They like, neglected all the spiritual stuff. Pharisees believed all up to the T. They didn't show no love. Sadducees said, we love everybody, but we don't got no truth. We don't get to do either. We do both. Love and truth. Lastly, the final thing. This is why we do it. This is the whole point of it. We give the Gospel and we aim for restoration. Give the Gospel and aim for restoration. It's the recognition of this. When you go to someone in judgment, brother, sister, I don't judge you. I know better than you. I'm full of brokenness and sin more than I probably even know of. I've had no hope and no help, but I found that in Jesus. And I want you to know that. A brother and sister, 
I don't stand in condemnation over you because there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But brother and sister, how we're living and how you're living is not reflecting Jesus. It's not reflecting Him. And I want you to know Him and I want you to live for Him because I want you to know the fullness of the measure of love and mercy and joy that He gives those who walk faithfully after Him. Is that what your critique sounds like? Is it aiming for restoration? Is it leading with the gospel? I've been forgiven. I've received grace beyond imagination. Am I giving that to others? We want them to be restored. We want them brought back to the fold. We want them living that kind of life. Not a life that reflects me and my wants, but a life that reflects Christ's glory. James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Is that our heart? Is our heart to go bring back them or say good riddance? They didn't fit here. They were just messing it up to begin with. Do we have a heart of pursuit? This says, please come back. There's nothing out there for you. Come back here. 2 Corinthians 13.11 Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace and the God of love and peace will be with you. Aim for restoration. Seek to restore each other. That should be the... I don't want to sit in judgment. I just want us to be restored. I want it to be right. I want things to be right. Because that's what Christ made and He died for. That we would be right. Because we're right with God. I want us to be right with each other. And so there's one passage in Scripture that brings this whole picture together. What does doing righteous correction and judgment as an instrument of mercy in a perverse culture look like? Galatians chapter 6 gives us the perfect answer. I want you to see all these elements we just talked about. Brothers, if anyone is called in any transgression, you who are spiritual, bam, stop. It's got to be that. If you're not spiritual, if you don't have that means of mercy in you, it ain't going to happen. It's supernatural, this kind of mercy. Should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Right? Love, grace, truth. Keep watch on yourself. Lest you be tempted. Tempted for what? What does he mean? Bear one another's and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. That's the temptation. The temptation is to sit over them in judgment and say, you just need to get right. Like you were better. You could be here. You would just do better. And that's why he says, keep an eye on yourself. Look at your own log. Before you start calling out their speck and thinking you're better than them. Before you try to dethrone Christ and sit on the judgment seat. We have made, we have made the church less of a, of a bountiful blessing and more of a bema seat of judgment. It ought not to be. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone. He's talking about the fact that in Christ, right? He's not talking about self-pride or things like that. It will be in the realities of what Christ has done in me that will now pour out 
to one another. It won't be in my neighbor. It won't be in my, me thinking that, man, I, I, I'm glad I did that for them because if I didn't, they wouldn't be in a terrible place. It's thinking about them, right? No, it's putting our hearts in the right place. And so he turns here to verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap the measure. If we do not give up, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. That is the summation of the law of mercy. My friends, this is what sets us apart from the world. The law of mercy that we live by, that Christ has given us. Being slow to pronounce guilt. Acknowledging our own sin and our deep, abundant need for grace before dealing with others. Having the spiritual discernment to know when the best thing right now is to be silent and to pray. Judging others with righteous judgment. Knowing when it is kind and true and necessary. Leading with love. Giving the gospel and aiming for restoration. That's what it is to be an instrument of mercy for Christ and this world. And he who is able to do far more abundantly than we can ask or think. Will give this to us. Oh Lord. Let us be known less by our messages and more by our mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You so much for what You've done for us, God. We cannot say it enough that Your mercy is abundant and true and perfect. That Your grace is unimaginable. That You have lavished it upon us in ways that we cannot even fathom at all, Lord. That the ten, there are 10 billion ways right now that you are sustaining us and upholding us by your mercy. So God, let us be like you, Father. Father, oh, we want to be like you. And Lord, I pray, God, that we will surrender our being to you. That maybe there's someone here today that hasn't known of that forgiveness and mercy. And this sounds so foreign to them, but they want it. They are yearning in their heart to want a life and a heart like this. Then Lord, I say, make them yours. Draw them to Yourself in grace and mercy. Fill them with Your love. Let them know of the forgiveness that they have in You. That they are justified, made right in heaven. Because of You and You alone. And then transform their hearts that mercy might flow out of them. Lord, help us be more like Jesus. Help us be more like You. Lord, we want You to be glorified in the way that we live. Lord, where there is a judgmental heart and a critical spirit in our marriages, towards our children, towards one another in the church, towards those outside the church, Lord, I say, please crucify it. Kill it. Crush it. Pluck it out of us, God. That we might be those who judge rightly. Who are instruments of mercy. Lord, let us not do the work of the enemy serving to accuse our brothers. Let us be their advocates giving mercy everywhere we can. Grace 
abundantly. Love unconditionally. Let these be the mark of your people as your instruments of mercy. That you may be glorified in all we do. We say this in Jesus' name. Amen.